Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is diving into diet, supplements, evolutionary biology, and all things health with my guest, co-author of The Perfect Health Diet, Dr. Paul Geminet. Dr. Geminet, thank you so much for making the time to be here, sir. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be with you, Xavier. So, Dr. Geminet, for our listeners that may not know, can you just get into your education and your background, please? Um. Yeah, well, I'm uh, a little bit overeducated. I uh, got a PhD in physics and had a, uh, a career as an astrophysicist for a little while. Uh, but then I decided to leave and become a software entrepreneur. And uh, uh, that was during the internet boom. And, uh, uh, and then when we uh, sold that company in 2001, then uh, uh, I started uh, consulting and uh, uh, working on some books. I'd always wanted to uh, write some books and I'd gotten some uh, good ideas in business and economics that I wanted to write about. Uh, but as I did that, you know, I had been noticing my health declining and, uh, uh, and, it, and it kept getting worse uh, every year and I finally decided that uh, uh, I should actually focus on health for a little while first. And uh, so that's how I got into thinking about health. Wow. Astrophysics. Interesting. So, I mean, let's let's go through what was going through your mind. I mean, how did you get to that point where you felt like you needed to write this book and create awareness on, on health? I, well, it really just started with my own health problems, uh, first of all, and then my wife's. Uh, so we both had, uh, you could call them middle-age health problems, but, uh, uh, you know, things that really shouldn't have been happening and that, you know, we knew were not just normal aging. And uh, in my case, I'd had some problems since birth. I was in and out of the hospital uh, the first four years of life. Uh, with chronic ear infections, and I had uh, adenoids tonsils removed as uh, part of that, and uh, um, and I always had some uh, problems with fungal infections and acne and uh, uh, and things like that. Uh, but then in my twenties, I took a year-long course for antibi of antibiotics to treat the acne, and all of my problems got worse, and. Uh, uh, and then from then on, it, it seemed like every year I would get less and less healthy and less and less able to do things. And my reactions became very slow. Um, I started dropping things all the time. Uh, I had a very bad uh, essential tremor. Um, I couldn't uh, run or exercise quickly. Uh, I had memory loss. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was really worried about, you know, if things keep getting worse year after year, what, what am I going to be in 10 years? And uh, my wife had hypothyroidism and endometriosis and other problems. And, uh, you know, so, we, you know, we knew things weren't right, but we didn't know how to fix them. You know, we would go to the doctor once a year and, uh, and he would say, oh, uh, there's not, I don't see anything I can do. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's hard to, uh, 
it was hard to get a diagnosis or a working treatment. And, uh, uh, you know, and this went on for years, and you know, but I just didn't know an avenue to pursue things. And then uh, a couple things came together uh, in 2005. Uh, first, we tried some Chinese herbal medicines, and uh, those made a difference. They made some things better, but they also uh, gave me like an allergic type reaction, so I stopped them. Uh, but that started me thinking, oh, things I put in my mouth uh, matter, you know, because those, uh, this wasn't, you know, like a pill that you would buy. These were, you know, the actual leaves and bark and uh, herbs, and you'd make a, you'd make a tea decoction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, so it was much like food. And, uh, you know, so I started thinking, oh, it looks like, you know, nothing in medicine had helped us, but uh, it looks like something that is food-like uh, has, you know, powerful effects. And so I started thinking, well, uh, you know, it makes sense that food would be important. And so I started thinking about diet, but I, I didn't believe the mainstream diets uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't know how to pursue things. And then I came across the paleo diet and decided to give that a try. And that also, uh, like the Chinese medicine, had some powerful effects and really, you know, changed the symptoms. Some things got better. Uh, some new symptoms appeared. Um, you know, but it was really educational and exciting. And, uh, you know, so now I knew diet really mattered. And, you know, and then it became a, a problem of uh, refining the paleo diet to make it better. And, so, that, yeah, and that was what uh, we ended up spending the next five years working on. Hmm, very interesting. So, I mean, I know that you get into evolutionary biology, but what, what is, in your opinion, is an optimal diet? How does a person determine what that is for them? Well, um, the way we started determining it was by looking at nutrition and looking at um, all of the known nutrients and figuring out what's the optimal amount of each for our bodies uh, and then uh, putting that together, translating it into foods, saying what mix of foods do we need to eat in order to uh, optimize our diet and that's what took five years. It took a lot of research. Uh, but then when we did that, uh, what we found is uh, a, a lot of uh, remarkable uh, coincidences that led us back toward evolutionary explanations for what the optimal diet was. And so, for instance, we noticed our diet, the composition was very similar to that of breast milk. And, uh, you know, so then a light bulb goes on, oh, of course, breast milk is the optimal food for infants. Uh, and, you know, it must have been selected to be, you know, the most nourishing possible food. And so it makes sense that something similar would be optimal for adults. So the adult, the optimal adult diet has a little more protein, a little fewer carbs than breast milk, uh, but it's very similar. And uh, so that was one thing we noticed. And then we also noticed, oh, our food is really delicious. It's it's very similar to gourmet food in the high-end restaurants. And uh, you know why is that? And then and then we thought, oh, well, why did our you know, in the restaurants, they're trying to make food that, you know, people love and, you know, that our brains react to very positively and say, oh, this is great. And if you think in evolutionary terms, why would our brain say this is great? It, only because it would be helping us be healthy and be more successful and have more children and grandchildren. Um, you know, so it made sense that if we, uh, 
eat, eat meals that are delicious and satisfying, uh, then uh, that's likely to be a very healthful diet. If it's one composed of natural whole foods, like we, you know, the, the sorts of things we would have had access to in the Paleolithic. Um, so, you know, so we still uh, stuck with the ancestral paleo template, uh, but we refined it. Uh, and so our diet ends up being uh, about three parts plant food to one part animal food. So it's more plant food rich than, you know, people may think of paleo, but it's still a paleolithic type diet. It's a type of diet that our ancestors ate in the Paleolithic. It's a natural whole foods diet, uh, but it's delicious. It's combined in uh, the proportions that will uh, make us really enjoy our food and be really satisfied after the meal is over. Hmm. Interesting, because I, I tend to be a very busy person, and so most of the time I am just kind of grabbing what's available and eating that, and I usually find that's not the best way to approach things. Are Were there some foods that you found that specifically that we should maybe absolutely avoid to maintain a, a healthy lifestyle? Uh, yeah, I would, I would definitely avoid processed foods, industrial foods. You know, any of the things made with purified nutrients. So usually those are things where the ingredients list starts with starch, oil, sugar. Um, you know, so those end up, you know, they've taken out all of the micronutrition and the fiber from food. They've just kept the calories and then they've repackaged the calories with some flavorings. And so you don't want to eat those. Uh, generally, highly processed foods are going to be bad for you. And then in terms of ingredients, you generally want to avoid anything with vegetable seed oils. Uh, you know, they're high in omega-6 fats. They tend to have uh, toxins. They need a lot of processing in order to remove the toxins, but the processing can add toxins uh, itself. Uh, it's good to avoid added sugar. Uh, we don't really need it. Uh, just the natural sugars in, uh, in fruits and starches and other plants are... Uh, the optimal amount for us. Uh, and in, in general, you should be suspicious of, uh, of uh, seeds uh, because those are going to have the most uh, defenses. Uh, and especially the seeds of plants that grow in grasslands, uh, like uh, the cereal grains, like wheat, uh, because those have co-evolved with herbivorous mammals. And so... Uh, the, the big evolutionary challenge for the seeds was uh, getting digested uh, by mammals, and they don't want that to happen. So they all have digestive inhibitors uh, and various things that interfere with the functioning of a mammal's body, and, uh, and not all of them are destroyed in cooking. So we include white rice in our diet because uh, all of the known toxins in white rice are destroyed in cooking. Uh, but uh, in general, you should be suspicious of uh, grains and uh, uh, and some of the uh, beans uh, because they've uh, tended to evolve uh, toxins that affect mammalian biology. Hmm. Are there are there some specific vitamins that we absolutely need that you recommend that people take? And um, well, uh, we definitely need to be well nourished. So uh, we need. We need all of the vitamins and minerals and actually some other nutrients that aren't classified as vitamins or minerals. Uh, and, you know, the reason 
things were called vitamins as they're necessary for life. If, if you had a diet without any of a vitamin, you would die. Um, so they're all necessary, but some of them are really easy to get from food. Uh, so just eating a natural whole foods diet, not one of the you know, processed foods diet that doesn't have the micronutrition gets you a long way. Uh, and then it's really good to eat what we call supplemental foods. So foods that have, uh, you know, we call them that because uh, they're foods we think you should include regularly, daily or weekly in your diet, just like supplements. And uh, those include things like egg yolks, liver, uh, extracellular matrix material from bones, joints, tendons, hooves, um, and uh, seafood, uh, fermented vegetables. Uh, uh, you know, so we have a we have a list in our book and on our website, and uh, and then there's still a few things that it's very easy to be deficient in. You know, so. Uh, you know, if you eat oysters, you can get enough zinc, but many people don't eat oysters and find it easier to supplement. Uh, you know, similarly, if you ate enough sweet peppers, you could do okay with vitamin C if you're not uh, too sick. But, you know, many people have trouble getting enough vitamin C and it's worth supplementing. Many people have trouble getting enough magnesium. Um, vitamin D, we don't get out in the sun enough, expose our skin to the sun. Uh, so it can be beneficial to supplement that. A lot of people don't eat seafood regularly enough, so supplementing iodine can be beneficial. Um, you know, so it's really, you have to look at uh, the context of your diet and see what you're not getting from food, uh, and, then, uh, and then it can be beneficial to supply those particular things in uh, supplemental form. Was there, was there any, anything game-changing for you that you found that would improve your life by adding into your diet? Um, well, for most people, it's going to be egg yolks, liver, uh, seafood and seaweed, uh, and uh, fermented vegetables to uh, support the gut flora, and extra, extracellular matrix material. So those will probably be the biggest uh, things that are beneficial. Uh, in terms of supplements, I'd probably say uh, magnesium, iodine, and in people who are less healthy, vitamin C would be, uh, you know, highly beneficial things to, to add. Um, and, uh, uh, and then I'd say another huge factor in health that many people overlook is uh, timing of when you do things. And meal timing is very important. So we recommend intermittent fasting, uh, having an overnight fast of 16 hours, and making sure that your eight-hour feeding window is entirely in the daytime. Uh, so you want to coordinate your eating with your light exposure and your physical activity and your social interactions and, hmm. uh, and then have a period of rest at night uh, in which you don't eat. Hmm, very interesting. Can we get into that a little bit more? So you're, you're saying that we should have a period of eight hours where we spend and, and those eight hours we should eat with the, in that window and the, the other, what is it, 16 hours of, of the day that we should, we should not we should not be ingesting food at all? Uh, that's right. So, um, you know, so I would recommend fluids and electrolytes in, during the fast. You know, so things like coffee, tea, uh, vegetable soup, um, you know, but basically minimal or no calories. And, uh, uh, you know, so at our health retreats, we, 
uh, suggest, you know, especially people who have adrenal issues, um, you know, keep like a cherry tomato and some salt and water by your bed, and then you can replenish electrolytes uh, because if your adrenals aren't functioning well, you'll tend to lose electrolytes uh, and you won't be able to maintain them properly in the fast. So if you replenish them, uh, you know, through the night, just before bed and after waking, that'll make the fast less stressful. Um, but uh, in general, it's a very good idea to uh, do intermittent fasting and accentuate the circadian rhythms of food, you know, so that your calories are concentrated uh, in the daytime. Hmm, it's very interesting. There seems to be some mixed research on dietary supplements. On one of the two battling sides, there's a multi-billion dollar industry and these these manufacturers are putting out vitamins, mineral, fiber, amino acids. On the other side, there's there seems to be a growing body of research that suggests people should ab- abandon multivitamins completely and that this is a placebo and that we're being duped. How, how do you respond to this? And how can laymen such as myself kind of navigate these opposing claims? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a complex topic. So there's a lot of nutrients. And, uh, and in general, the, uh, you know, the health effects of a nutrient are U-shaped. So uh, your health is poor if you're deficient, but your health can also be damaged by getting an excess of a nutrient. So a lot of nutrients turn into toxins when you get too much. And, uh, you know, so that means there's an optimal amount. And whether a supplement is going to help you or hurt you depends on whether you're below the optimum or above it. And, uh, you know, so something like a multivitamin where uh, for marketing purposes, it seems the best strategy is to give people 100% of the RDA of everything. Uh, And, you know, but that means, you know, most people are getting 100% of the RDA of things in food. And so that means you're giving them 200% of a lot of nutrients. And that can potentially tip over into the toxic end. Um, on the other side, uh, there's a lot of things that are left out of multivitamins because they're too bulky. Uh, you know, so people are willing to eat, uh, you know, several pounds of food, but they're not willing to eat a, a very large multivitamin. And, uh, you know, so they don't tend to put in, uh, bulky things like magnesium or vitamin C, uh, into, into multivitamins. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of things that are, uh, missing from multivitamins, or they're in, uh, you know, homeopathic type quantities, uh, and and it happens that a lot of the things that are missing from multivitamins are the things that people are actually most efficient in, uh, and a lot of the things that multivitamins provide, you know, people are doing okay with and don't really need more of. Uh, so it's not that surprising that multivitamins have, you know, shown as pretty much neutral. Uh, in in most studies. Hmm. So, so what supplements do you personally use in your in your life? Uh, I take uh, I take some extra vitamin C. I take a low dose of iodine daily. Uh, even though I eat a fair amount of seafood, but I don't eat seafood every day. And I think it's beneficial to get some iodine every day. And I just find it easiest to take a take a pill. I take vitamin D in the winter. Uh, uh, because I have difficulty getting, I live in Boston, which is a, a little bit far north, and I have difficulty getting enough sunshine in the winter. Um, and uh, uh, a few others, I take some zinc once a week, 
Um, and uh, uh, let's see, uh, I'll take some uh, silicon uh, occasionally. Um, if I don't eat, uh, if I don't eat liver for a while, I'll take a little vitamin A. Um, but uh, uh, pretty much, I, I try to get uh, most nutrients from food. Hmm. Okay. Um, where do you Where do you think the current established kind of standing of the Western medical system is? I mean, I I know that you've battled with this chronic like illness to disease type stuff, and uh, you know, how do you feel the Western medical system is addressing these health problems that more and more people seem to be having? Well, I think it's doing a poor job. Um, I think uh, you know we got a little carried away uh, by the idea of uh, pharmaceutical science. So, uh, you know, just the way medical science developed, uh, you know, when they started uh, putting it on a good footing, uh, in the early 20th century they discovered uh, the major nutrients and, and vitamins. And, uh, and nutritional research kind of came to a stop there uh, and medicine moved on. Uh, there was a big yeah, there was huge progress against infectious diseases. Uh, and then when things shifted toward uh, uh, chronic diseases with multiple causes, so things like cancer and cardiovascular disease became the dominant causes of death, uh, then uh, you know medicine wanted to stick with uh, kind of the pharmaceutical paradigm which had been worked out for infectious diseases. You know, of you know first developing first vaccines and then antibiotics and you know looking for compounds that would module that would uh, alter our biology and hope that they could find those compounds that would fix those diseases and I think we can say at this point that the pharmaceutical approach to those diseases really hasn't worked so uh, basically it looks like the causes of most modern diseases are in our diet and lifestyle and nutrition and and if you keep someone on a bad diet and and keep them malnourished and keep them on an unhealthy lifestyle but you try to alter their biology you can't there's no way to fix the harm of being malnourished there's no way to fix the harm of not giving your body the uh, lifestyle environmental signals so what the, the only thing the drugs can really do is is move the symptoms around you know so they can uh, change where problems occur. You know, so for instance in diabetes people tend to get neuropathy uh, early on and the drugs can move the harm, some of the harm out of the nerves and towards somewhere else, you know, so that you sicken the whole body at the same pace and so you don't, you don't die quite as early. Um, and you know, those are beneficial drugs but it, it really, what people really would have hoped for was to be made healthy. And I think what we're starting to realize is that uh, a, a good diet and lifestyle approach really can fix these problems and uh, remove the risk of the diseases. So I think uh, in terms of where the medical system has to head, it has to incorporate diet, nutrition, lifestyle much more deeply and make those much more central to the healing process. Right. Uh, what do you What do you think the biggest misconception about diet and healthy food is that you've noticed? Um, I would say you know probably uh, the biggest popular misconception is that 
you need to go to extremes or you need to suffer in order to eat a healthy diet. So, um, you know, a lot of the popular diet regimens that are proclaimed as healthy are, you know, somewhat restrictive. Um, or they may remove, you know, one type of food entirely. So uh, the vegan vegetarian doctors who re removed animal food or went to a very low-fat diet had a, you know, a long run. Uh, and more recently, the low-carb movement, uh, restricting carbohydrates, uh, has, you know, been very popular. Um, and we've also had a lot of uh, uh, other more specialized diets that, uh, you know, remove... You know, I'm thinking of some autoimmune protocols or uh, gut healing, uh, putative gut healing diets that re remove a lot of types of food. Um, and, you know, so one, one misconception I would say is that, you know, if you, if you just remove lots of foods, you, you'll tend to improve your health. You know, where actually a diversity of foods is most often uh, the, what's going to do you the most good. Uh, and then on uh, the other side about taste, you know, like, like we said earlier, uh, our brains evolved to make us healthy. And, uh, you know, so things that taste good, uh, if they're made out of natural whole foods, are going to be healthy for us more often than not. So you don't, you don't want food that, uh, you know, is tasteless or uh, unpleasant or, uh, you know, leaves you unsatisfied. Uh, there's probably something missing, if, if that's the case. Hmm, that's interesting, just because I've always found that the foods that are most healthy for me usually taste pretty bad. So, <laughs> um, huh, I wonder if you could go into that a little bit more. Um, well, uh, let me tell you what I typically eat for lunch. So, um, I'll take a big bowl, and I'll make my lunch out of leftovers, and I'll put in some kind of starch like potatoes or rice. Uh, I'll put in, uh, you know, some kind of vegetable uh, like like spinach. Uh, often we have leftover vegetables. I'll just put those in. Um, I'll put in some leftover meat or fish. Um, I'll put in three egg yolks. I'll put in uh, some vinegar, some coconut milk, uh, and fish sauce usually as flavorings. And then just heat it up in the microwave, and uh, and it's delicious. <laughs> and you know, so um, and that's actually uh, you know, so we we're writing a cookbook. We have a we have a template for how do you design a meal, uh, and it's pretty much uh, you know if you get the foods in the right proportions, then uh, it'll be delicious every time. And uh, uh, you know, and actually, if you look at the nutrient composition of that lunch that I just described, and you add in a little bit of fruit or berries, you know, then it would, uh, you know, basically come very close to the composition of breast milk. And, uh, you know, like we said earlier, that's a, uh, a very healthy uh, a, a combination of nutrients. Was there, was there any specific moment where you realized there was a kind of eureka for you as far as, oh, okay, this works for me and kind of your, in your understanding of health and healthy eating and if you could go into that for us? Um, I would say, you know, one thing, any, anyone who's written a book will know uh, when you start writing, you, uh, you know, you realize how little you know and, uh, and you have to... Uh, keep doing a lot of research in order to be able to 
uh, you know, write something that, that's good. And so what happened for us is um, um, I was, you know, getting to an age where uh, the generation before mine, you know, my uh, father, my aunts and uncles were having, uh, you know, starting to have significant health problems. So I wanted to write up what I'd learned for them and started uh, writing uh, something up. And then uh, I kept finding, you know, things I needed to think more deeply about. And, uh, uh, and it kept growing. Uh, and then I decided, uh, you know, once that was done, that I should turn it into a book and, uh, and kept going. And then we, we started a blog and we kept learning from our, from our readers. And then uh, Scribner and Simon and Schuster came to us and asked us to do a, uh, a new version. And, and so we did another round of research and uh, updated everything. And I would say the big, you know, eureka moments are, you know, things like, first of all, it, people mostly aren't deficient in vitamins. They're mostly deficient in minerals. And, uh, you know, so that was one thing where, you know, I'd, I'd had kind of a haphazard record of supplementing things, but I would tend to focus on vitamins. And, uh, uh, you know, most people don't need B vitamin supplements, but most people do need more minerals. Um, so that was probably one of the earliest Eureka moments. Um, I would say, you know, once we saw, once we had gotten through all of the nutritional analysis and saw a picture of what the diet looked like and realized that it, it looked like gourmet cuisine, you know, that was, a, that was a major Eureka moment. Also realizing that it looked like breast milk and then starting to look into some of the evolutionary explanations and, uh, and then realizing, well, you know, the breast milk of all the animals is similar, uh, so why do animals eat different diets? And then looking into that aspect, we realized that uh, it's really only the digestive tracts that evolve and the nutritional needs of animals are pretty much all the same. Uh, and that's why their breast milk is very similar. And, uh, you know, so all that really evolves when animals move to a different food source is the digestive tract changes in order to convert uh, the foodstuffs into a different set of nutrients. And, uh, um, you know, so humans are interesting. We have a pretty minimal digestive tract, and therefore we need to eat close to our optimal nutritional needs. Uh, and so the animals that can uh, eat things that aren't, don't have optimal nutrition need to have very big guts uh, to do a lot of fermentation of the, of the plant foods and uh, transform them into a different set of nutrients. Um, so, uh, yeah, there were a lot of insights, and then, uh, and then also, I would say, in writing the Scribner edition, we realized the importance of lifestyle, and uh, you know, things like meal timing, other circadian rhythm entrainment factors, and coordinating the various circadian rhythm entrainers. So, coordinating when you eat, with when you're exposed to light, with when you exercise, with when you get social interactions. Um, those are all important things to do. Hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. So you get into evolutionary biology and you talk about how there was a shift of the sort of hunter-gatherer to your modern-day supermarket. Can, if you could get into that for a bit, I think that would be interesting. Um, yeah, well, there's, uh, there's a number of changes. So, uh, you know, one of them is uh, of course, the hunter-gatherers, all they had were natural whole foods. Uh, 
And we have those around the edges of the supermarket, but then in the middle of the supermarket, we have all these manufactured foods, uh, which were put together uh, with only specific nutrients and are often completely lacking in other nutrients. Uh, and so for the first time, you could uh, you can eat foods that have been designed to appeal to our brains, uh, but that don't actually have the nutrients that our brain uh, expects, and that uh, you know the natural whole foods that had that same taste would have provided. Um, so it's now possible to be malnourished in a way that hunter-gatherers could never have been malnourished except in starvation. You know, so for the first time we can be we can be overeating calories but undereating nutrition, and that really uh, wouldn't have happened in uh, the Paleolithic. Uh, and then it's also possible now to uh, have totally messed up circadian rhythms. So uh, if you think back in the Paleolithic, uh, it wasn't that easy to do a lot of things at night. You know, you could, you could start a fire, uh, but it's still not that convenient. Uh, anyone who's gone camping, it's not that convenient to cook and uh, uh, you know, do a lot of work in the dark. Uh, and, you know, some in the Paleolithic, most of the eating would have been done in the daytime because that's when it was convenient to uh, do all that work. Um, and they would have eaten very little at night, but now we have artificial lighting. Uh, we've got refrigerators and so on. We can raid them at midnight, and, uh, and it's very easy to eat at night. So, you know, a lot of things have changed. Our technology has liberated us in many ways, but it's it's also liberated us to do unhealthy things and we've managed to start doing them in quantity uh, most of us so uh, you know it's definitely it's it's now it's now essential for people to educate themselves about what is a healthy diet what is a healthy lifestyle and then manage their lives that way uh, because the environment doesn't no longer forces us to live with a healthy lifestyle. Uh, it allows us to be very unhealthy if we choose to live that way. Hmm. Very interesting. So what is your, what is your, I tend to go to the, the gym quite a lot and um, in kind of the, the gym language, they, the ketosis is brought up a lot and avoiding carbs and, and what's your opinion on that? Well, um, that's another, you know, we mentioned earlier some of the uh, restrictive diet approaches that uh, are sometimes used as therapies for various things. So uh, the vegan, uh, low-fat uh, restrictive diets or the low-carb restrictive diets. And ketosis is it's another form of uh, restrictive diet. Uh, when we're starved of carbohydrate and protein, then our bodies start turning fats into ketones and the ketones uh, can substitute for carbohydrates in the brain and uh, various other places and you know so it's a way of coping with the carbohydrate restriction and uh, and this can actually be beneficial in certain health conditions it can be beneficial for neurological function and uh, uh, some other issues and so it's you know it's actually you know, a medically approved therapy for epilepsy. And it works also for many other neurological conditions like migraines. Uh, but it's, um, 
you know, like all the restrictive diets, it's it's very easy to become malnourished uh, when you do that. If you're not eating carbohydrates, then you're probably not supplying your gut microbiome with carbohydrates, and uh, and you need to get uh, quite a bit of carbohydrate fiber in order to have a healthy gut microbiome. Um, so. Uh, and there's also certain plant-associated nutrients and minerals like potassium uh, that it's very easy to be deficient in if you if you're on a, a carb-restricted diet, uh, and uh, and there are some risks to getting too much oil also. So you know one of the ways people uh, promote the generation of ketones is by overeating oil. And uh, and that can lead to oxidative stress and other issues, uh, you know, with potentially negative effects on the heart and uh, and other tissues. So, um, you know, so I would say ketogenic diets, uh, which put people on ketosis, they're you know potentially a powerful therapeutic option, uh, but they're also tend to be a risky option. And so I wouldn't recommend that as a, as a routine diet. Uh, but like I said, you know, I recommend intermittent fasting of 16 hours each night. And so that will start to put you in a little bit of ketosis toward the end of the fast. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, so, you know, you want to be, uh, you want to have a certain degree of moderation in, uh, in regard to ketosis. Yeah, it does seem like there needs to be a sort of sense of balance in all things, which makes sense. Uh, is there something that you could give a person, maybe perhaps listening to the show right now, one thing that they can do that would immediately improve their overall health? Um, be well nourished. Uh, you know, so supplemental foods, things like egg yolks, uh, you know, really do. Uh, it tend to improve health quite a bit. Uh, I would say, you know, the meal timing, the circadian rhythm, all circadian rhythm entrainment is very powerful for health. Uh, it, you, you can easily, in studies, uh, shorten people's lives by six years by disrupting circadian rhythms. And, uh, you know, and just disrupting any one factor in circadian rhythms, like if you don't exercise, you'll lose six years off your life. If you get a night shift job, you'll lose six years off your life. Um, you know, or if you get sleep apnea, um, if you, you know, get a lot of uh, loud noises or bright lights at night, then you'll uh, lose six years off your life. If you don't get enough social interactions in the day, then uh, you'll lose years off your life. Um, so all of those factors are really important. Uh, eating at night is associated with obesity and diabetes and various other health problems. Uh, so you definitely want to focus your food intake in the daytime. And, uh, uh, you know, so probably those are, you know, like the, and, uh, you know, and of course eating a natural whole foods diet. So you really want to avoid uh, the, you know, the manufactured foods in the middle of the supermarket. Hmm. Makes sense to me. Is there, and one, one question we're wrapping up, about to wrap up here, but one last question that I like to ask all my guests, is, is there one thing that you would, if there was one thing that you could go back in time and tell yourself when you began this journey, what would it be? Um, 
well, I'd like to carry a copy of our book back and uh, and give it to myself and say, read this because um, actually the name of the name of our book, Perfect Health Diet, uh, that is chosen. It's it's not so much that we're claiming that our diet is already perfect. It's more that uh, we're saying you really need to uh, aim per, aim for perfection in order to achieve goodness, in order to achieve good health, and the reason is that. Uh, there are so many factors that influence health. You know, there are, uh, you know, 50 to 100 nutrients that uh, have a big impact on our health. Uh, there are also many lifestyle factors, you know, things like meal timing, you know, things, influences on your gut microbiome. Uh, so, you know, there's just many, many factors that influence health. So there's no one magic bullet. Uh, but if you get the complete story together, then it can make a huge difference. And so that's why I'd have to uh, carry back our book, which you know discusses a great many things, and uh, and just recommend that. So no, no one specific message for your younger self then. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think I think we said some of them: eat natural, whole foods, be well nourished, uh, and entrain circadian rhythms. Uh, would be the biggest things, uh, you know. But uh, if, if there were a magic bullet in diet, nutrition, health, you know, then it would have been found long ago. If all you had to do was do one thing, Very and true. you know, you'd have great health, then it would have been discovered pretty quickly. So, where can people find more about your work and what you and your wife are doing? Well, you can go to our website, perfecthealthdiet.com, and. Uh, uh, we also conduct health retreats twice a year in May and October, and uh, those are called the Perfect Health Retreat, and uh, and they've been a great experience so far. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Gemini. I really appreciate you making the time and, and being present here with us, and this is The Human Experience. Thank you so much for listening. We're signing out. All right. Thank you, Xavier.